back to What on Earth, a podcast for you, the busy professionals who want to know what's happening under the earth, above the earth and around the world in this era of transitioning to post-carbon world. I'm James Scotland, the General Manager of Minerals, Energy and Supply Chain for the Australian Industry Group. And with me as always is Tennant Reid, the Senior Policy Advisor for AI Group. Hey, Tennant. Hey, James. And Paul Hodgson, a business and industry commentator with a particular interest in trans, um, transformation and change. Hello, Paul. Hi, James. How are you? Um, well, you know what, since uh, we've launched What on Earth into the uh, the open platforms, we've had some great feedback, uh, including one uh, from South Africa who said that she learned a lot from our last podcast. One comment I got, which I really appreciated, was from a businessman in Australia who said, why are we looking to the future in these podcasts rather than looking at what's happening in the industry today? Um, and I, I, I responded to him that we need to look forward. We need to future-proof our industries because things change fast. Paul, I thought, how would you have answered that? Because you're interested in transformation and change. Why are we looking forward rather than down? Well, I think it's it's really important. I mean, business is 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 a very busy pursuit, um, and and it's the the, uh, the 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 things that are right right where you are now in the present that actually consume a lot of your thinking, a lot of your time. And I think podcasts are a great example of actually how you might be able to just think about your business and where it's going. Perhaps reflect a little bit. Perhaps a little look to the future, um, and it's out of your intray. Um, it's out of the uh, phone messages you've got a ref- uh, and, and, uh, and a, uh, an overflowing email inbox um, of, of really urgent things you need to do on a day-to-day basis. And uh, I think it's really good for anyone to actually uh, continually sort of look to, well, actually, where are we going? Are we on the right path? What are some of the things we might want to think about? Because it actually does then reflect back to the things you do day-to-day as if you like the early stepping stones towards the future. Yeah, I remember hearing that General Montgomery uh, in World War II, you know, the, when he was fighting Rommel, he used to wake up, his Batman would bring him a cup of tea and he'd spend 20 minutes just thinking. He didn't get involved in anything and he said, don't tell me what's going on overnight, I don't want to know, I just want to think about what might happen tomorrow, in a few days, in a few months, in, a few, you know, in the future. What do you think, Tennant? Do you think we should look down or we should look up? I think that in the energy and climate spaces, things are moving so fast that if we think about and focus on anticipating the future, by the time we've done the thinking, gathered the evidence, processed it and relayed it to people, we might just about have caught up with what happened yesterday. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it certainly is fast, fast moving. And, and I think uh, that's a good segue, surprisingly, uh, into what we're going to talk about today. An issue that's got global implications, geopolitical and geoeconomic issues. Um, and it's also got Australian policy and political implications. But overall, it is about what we need to know as business when we look into the future. In this episode, we're going to unpack the European Union's vision of how it will conduct international trade when it comes to the environment and how this might impact Australian businesses, what it means for us, what it means for you. We're going to talk about the wonderful acronym, I love this, it's called CBAM. CBAM. CBAM stands for Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. It's a process for managing carbon pricing across international borders. 
And why are we talking about this? Well, there is so much talk around the world about carbon trade and whichever way the world goes, the mechanisms will have implications on your business. Uh, it'll have implications on your international trade uh, and it'll have implications on the way we operate our business. It will put pressure on our own carbon emissions. It's an emerging market issue, an operational issue, an export and import issue, and potentially an, an administrative issue for our business. So forewarned is forearmed. So let's discuss CBAME at the early stage of its development. Now here's the good news. What on Earth's very own acclaimed co-host, Tenant Reed, has recently completed a detailed 77-page, 28,000-word report on CBAM in Australia, and it's titled Swings and Roundabouts, the Unexpected Effects of the Carbon Border Adjustment on Australia. So I'm suggesting, Paul, that we put Tenant in the spotlight and see what he has to say for himself. <laughs> well, I'd, uh, I'd start by saying... Most people call it CBAM. I call it CBAM. Some people would like to jazz it up a bit by calling it KABAM. <laughs> and uh, uh, you are free to call it what you like. But it, it is a pretty dramatic development in international climate policy, in trade, uh, and it's certainly something that a lot of people in Australia have been getting either excited about or worried about because of what they think it might do to Australian businesses or Australian climate policy. And so what we've tried to do in this report is really dig in to how it actually is likely to work, the reasons why it's structured the way it is, and how that is likely to play out in terms of the, the impacts on Australian businesses. And not just from the European one, but it, potentially others from other major economies. Hence, swings and roundabouts. I love it. Uh, kabam. Let's put kabam into layman's term. In September last year, Ursula Bandel, I practiced this, Ursula Bandelayan, the President of the European Commission, said, Quote, carbon must have a price because nature can no longer pay that price. And this carbon border adjustment mechanism should motivate foreign producers, us, and EU importers, also us, to reduce their carbon emission while ensuring we level the playing field in a WTO-compatible way. She's talking about uh, ensuring there's a level playing field for businesses within the EU and those um, trading into the EU, and it sounds reasonable, but it's much more complex than that. Whilst the big picture is to reduce carbon and stop the world from heating up, the reality is that the world is structured as a collection of sovereign states, about 223 of them, and each sovereignty has absolute right to attack the problem as it fit, sees fit. And with each nation adopting different mechanisms, timelines, and even importance in regards to the challenge of carbon, there is a very real chance of a thing called carbon leakage. This is when one country implements a domestic carbon policy, uh, carbon pricing policy, and another country doesn't. People in the first country start buying the cheaper goods in the second country. It not only undermines the strength of the first, car, uh, first country's economy, it also doesn't solve the carbon price. So one answer is that proposed by President von der Leyen, impose a kind of carbon tariff on imports to ensure pricing equity is maintained, carbon emissions are reduced and carbon leakage is eliminated. 
but it's way more complicated than that. So, Tenet, perhaps pick, it, pick that story up from here. How did this come about? How did we lead up to this? And, by the way, just out of interest, how did you get involved in it? So, Europe is the, the first cab off the rank in terms of actually moving towards doing a carbon border adjustment. And the reason for that is that they have had uh, a, uh, a significant emissions trading scheme that imposes a carbon price on significant chunks of the European economy. Uh, for uh, more than a decade at this point, the caps under that scheme have been getting lower. Uh, recently, the carbon price has been getting much higher and they're about to implement a bunch of other reforms that are going to tighten caps further, send carbon prices higher and try to uh, get to a 55% reduction off their, 2000, off their 1990 emissions by 2030. And so the carbon leakage fears that you talked about, like they're getting uh, quite intense at this point. Uh, the emissions reduction goals are going to require increasingly a heavy industry to adopt new production technologies, not just get a bit more efficient, but uh, to switch steel making to hydrogen direct reduced iron or to make aluminium with inert anodes that don't uh, have direct emissions, as well as higher levels of clean electricity. So in that environment, they need a solution to the trade competitiveness problem. And the one they've got at the moment, which is widely practiced by other economies that have forms of carbon pricing, is to hand out some emissions rights for free to industries that they're worried about potentially losing. And that, that works okay in the near term, but uh, it gets harder and harder to sustain as the caps come down, the, the total emissions reduction sort are accelerating. Sooner or later, the amount of permits being handed out for free is going to be a greater number than the amount of permits that there are for emitting. So they need a different solution. And that's where carbon border adjustments come in. The idea of those is, as you say, uh, you uh, impose an equivalent carbon price on imports to that faced by domestic producers. Potentially, you could also do a rebate of carbon costs for exports for the kind of products you're worried about. Europe's not proposing to do that, uh, but it uh, potentially is a much cheaper solution and a more sustainable solution in both a financial sense and a carbon budget sense from the perspective of European governments than what they're doing today, which is free allocation, or what some other countries are doing, which is not having a carbon constraint at all. So you asked how, how I got into this, uh, and I've, I've been a bit of a CBAM tragic for, uh, for a few years now. Um, it's, it, it has become the new hotness with uh, the, the European proposal. But uh, I got into CBAMs in late 2015. Uh, I was at the Paris Climate Conference. Uh, I heard a lot of stuff from different uh, luminaries there, um, trade people, legal people, economists, uh, about trade and climate issues and I thought carbon border adjustments 
I, I was aware of them, but I thought they were a bad idea and, and wouldn't actually work in practice. And what I heard was a bit different to that. Uh, so when I got back, I started doing some research. I thought, hmm, this, there's, uh, there's possibly a paper in this. Uh, this is something that maybe the Australian policy debate needs to understand a bit more about. And then, like, a lot of things happened. Uh, so the short version is, and then five years later, <laughs> a beautiful paper was born into the world. Uh, how hard can it be? Uh, I want to perhaps talk about that idea about free allocations because I've heard numbers up to 40% of all allocations will be free in the next couple of years, which is just getting out of control. But before we get there, uh, Paul, you've had a sort of a history in this as well. Where is Australia up to in terms of the pricing of carbon? Uh, I read that um, the European is saying the current price of carbon is $60 per tonne, oh, 60 euros per tonne. The, um, the Biden administration has increased the Trump price up to uh, 60 USD per tonne, which is rough. The, the Euro Europeans have 70 USD, uh, America has 60 USD, and many economists are saying it should be over $100 uh, a tonne. Meanwhile, we don't hear much about that in Australia. Where, where are we? Are we pricing carbon? Uh, do we have a mechanism? What's the story? Um, probably, it might be, I might throw a tenant on that one in terms of do we have, I mean, we have an emissions reduction fund and we have, we have some other, we don't have a, an official climate, uh, a carbon price, but we have, um, uh, you know, we do, we do, and because we're part of a global world as well, there are, there are people who are paying for um, uh, uh, carbon offsets and the like. Um, um, so I don't know, tenant. I mean, have you got a sense of of what a price currently in Australia would be? So it really depends on how you look at it. Uh, on maps of world carbon pricing from the World Bank, Australia shows up as a carbon pricing jurisdiction. Some people would scratch their heads at that because, in theory, we abolished all of that six years ago. But uh, in fact, there is a scheme uh, in place right now. It's called the safeguard mechanism, which in theory uh, penalises uh, major emitters who go above baseline levels of emissions. Uh, the difficulty is that uh, those baselines are set at a level that uh, they generally won't be exceeded uh, and they uh, don't currently come down. So that's a... a I don't know, a sword of Damocles, uh, a, uh, uh, a pie uh, in the freezer waiting to be baked at another time. Um, that could be a carbon pricing analogue, uh, but currently there's no mandatory system in place that actually bites within Australia that is equivalent to the, um, the emissions trading scheme in Europe. And for the uh, European carbon border adjustment, some people have wondered, well, would we be exempt from it if we had uh, a carbon price uh, or would we, would we get some other uh, benefit from uh, beneficial treatment from having a carbon price? And in practice, the way that the uh, European proposal would work, uh, the introduction of a carbon price in Australia would not directly alter the competitiveness of Australian exports to Europe under a CBAM because they'd only waive the CBAM entirely 
if Australia were a part of the EU emissions trading scheme. Short of that, they'll give us a discount on our border liability to the extent of any carbon price, mandatory carbon price paid at home. But that just means that the, the, the cost of getting your good into the European market will be the same either way. You'll be paying uh, the, the final level of the EU carbon price. You just might be paying some of that within Australia rather than to European authorities. So that could make a big difference to the Australian Treasury. Uh, but what matters for the competitiveness of an Australian business exporting to a place that has a CBAM is not so much the policies that they face within Australia, but their actual performance in terms of the emissions intensity of their production and the emissions intensity of the electricity that they use to make their product. And if, they, if they've got a good story to tell on that, and that story is actually uh, viewed as credible and valid by the CBAM jurisdiction, then actually they could gain competitiveness, not lose it. So, so if I understand what you're saying, if there, if there was a, if Australian companies paid a price on carbon, that price would go to the Australian government. If the, if the government's not charging a, a carbon price, when we try to um, export into the European Union, they would charge us full weight 60 euros per tonne. That's right. And we get more competitive by not having carbon emissions. If we don't have, if we can prove we don't have carbon emissions, we don't have to pay as much because we don't have so much carbon per tonne. Uh, that sounds very complicated, by the way. That sounds like a, 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 an accounting nightmare. Is this going to be difficult? So it could be. Uh, the... Um the establishment of systems for reporting emissions and reporting uh, energy use is like that's a big exercise and a big enterprise. Australian businesses have already gone through that process, though. We have a world-class system for it's called the National Greenhouse and Energy Reporting System, and every facility in the country with direct emissions above 25,000 tonnes of CO2 per year or above some other thresholds for energy use has to report under that system already. And frankly, they're the only facilities that are likely to be caught up in something like the EU CBAM. So in principle... All the data that we need to provide to uh, satisfy European authorities is actually already available. The, the practical difficulty is getting the Europeans to accept that as valid. They've laid out some pretty stringent directions for what they will uh, uh, need to see proven before they accept declared emissions data as valid. Now, we've got a better shot than frankly anybody else in the world at meeting those requirements and getting our data accepted. But it's going to be pretty important for the Australian government to get in there and negotiate with Europe to get that data validated and accepted because if they don't, then uh, the chances are Australian exporters would be uh, not judged by their own emissions but judged by default assumptions and in the end, the default assumption is that 
the uh, emissions of an importer are, the, are equivalent to those of the worst 10% of most carbon belching inefficient producers of the same goods within Europe, where the European authorities do have good data for uh, what takes place within their own borders. And that, uh, that default assumption is the motivator for uh, importers to declare real data. Uh, so we have a good system. We just have to convince the European Union that the system's reliable. And if we do that, we might have an advantage. Hence your naming your report swings and roundabouts, uh, I think. Let's go, through, let's go through your mind, Paul. This mind saying, man, this sounds complicated, but maybe it's not as complicated as my head. Uh, what, what are you thinking? Um, I, look, I, I think it is, but I think it's also worth, you know, kind of pulling back up and kind of going, well, um, you know, and, and really to your point earlier on about, you know, why would why would someone be looking to the future in their business and, and, and why aren't we just talking about, you know, today's issues? Um, and it's, you know, this, this, this looking to reduce carbon has been a multi-decade um, uh, proposition now. This is, you know, this moving along. This is a, another iteration of a, a lever, I guess, that's looking to be pulled to, uh, to, to make, uh, to, to help us get on that path towards those Paris commitments. Um, and, and really for a business, yes, um, it's, you know, potentially looking at that. One of the quick takeaways for this, out of this fantastic paper that uh, that's been written, is is that uh, it's not going to affect many people. So you know, the the quick takeaway might be, well, there's not much to do really here. But looking at it this on a timeline, this is actually a new thing, and there'll be more things coming. Um, and it's actually, do you want to be buffeted along by administrative and regulatory um, and kind of things you have to do, or actually, do you want to look at this and go, how do I how do I actually get ahead of this? Um, and, and I think one of the things that's really interesting with this kind of thing, for a lot of people, it might look like a regulatory thing, an administrative thing, potentially even a protection thing. But as businesses, more and more businesses are doing things to reduce their carbon impact, um, they're actually looking for these kind of things to actually level the playing field and actually say, well, uh, it's really unfair if we're leading and we're looking to reduce our emissions, um, but we're actually not getting... Uh, we're getting others that are undercutting us in the market who aren't cutting uh, who aren't cutting their emissions. Um, and I do hear this a lot from business now that people say, uh, "I would it would be great if there was a carbon price in Australia because it would actually in incentivise to do things such as fugitive emissions from mining." Um, uh, there is no economic incentive for us to do that at the moment. Um, and so actually, you know, this thing of it being a, a compliance thing for business is, is not the, necessarily just the only way of looking at it. It's actually it's part of a suite of things which actually incentivize business to do things that they're actually wanting to do for a whole range of other reasons right now. So there's another swing and roundabout that is really important to take account of here in understanding the, the full effects of carbon border adjustments on businesses who might be covered, which is... Yes, there is an increase in the cost of supplying a covered product into Europe or another place with a CBAM, but the selling prices for those products are also going to increase because every potential supplier of these products is going to face some form of carbon price, whether it's the CBAM impost at the border or the 
European emissions trading scheme for producers within Europe or inside or outside Europe, the costs associated with making aluminium, steel, cement, fertiliser, electricity in zero emissions ways. Uh, Because every potential supplier to a European customer is going to bear those costs, customers will not be able to find somebody who doesn't want to charge them to recover those costs. And so if you're an importer who is, or, or a supplier to Europe, who is of average emissions intensity, you're probably going to be able to make back all of your carbon cost. If you're unusually clean, you're probably going to be able to be either more profitable or take more market share. It's only if you're falling behind your peers in terms of emissions intensity that you are likely to lose competitiveness over time. So for the the, the products that are affected, you know, there's going to be more of those over time. The Europeans are going to expand uh, to more products where they're worried about potential carbon leakage. And some of those might be products that Australia exports a lot more of uh, to Europe than we do today of aluminium and steel. Uh, so, for instance, coking coal or lead or some other minerals. But the dynamics will be quite similar uh, the selling prices will go up. Australian producers are actually in in these areas are comparable to the average emissions intensity within Europe. In the short term, they're probably profit neutral. In the longer term, it all comes down to how successful we are in lifting and continuously improving our own performance on emissions intensity in production and getting the emissions of our electricity system down to net zero. I think this is a good point. Just to clarify it for for everyone listening in, in the report you do speak a lot about carbon intensity. What do you specifically do you mean by that? So it's how many uh, tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent you produce per tonne of product that you make. You can also measure intensity in terms of uh, the uh, value add or the revenue associated with your products. But for this purpose, the most relevant one is how many uh, tonnes of carbon per tonnes of widget that you're making. And uh, the, the higher that number is, uh, the more affected you are by a carbon price. And does that include my energy source, such as if I get green electricity or coal-fired electricity? So in the first iteration of the EU CBAM, they're not proposing to include those embodied electricity emissions from your power source. They're just pricing what happens within the boundaries of your facility. But they're going to uh, study whether they can incorporate electricity emissions and also have a look at other embodied emissions like transport emissions. Now, I think that uh, they are going to wind up doing the electricity emissions and, and probably uh, do that by the time these liabilities actually start in 2026, uh, whereas other ones start to get a lot more complicated. Looking into the uh, the whole supply chain lying behind a producer is a lot of work. And the the benefits to Europe in terms of um, 
safeguarding the competitiveness of our industries, they get sort of smaller and smaller relative to the amount of work involved in gathering all of that data or, or requiring it to be gathered. So uh, I think that the electricity source is going to wind up mattering uh, and it's certainly front of mind already for a lot of businesses. Uh, but for, for the uh, immediate term, what the CBAM does require them to get on top of is the emissions generated within their own processes, within their own facility. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, since that gentleman asked me about why are we looking forward rather than down, um, it's, I've been thinking about what is it that we've been talking about. And uh, what we're, I think what we're saying is that there's no one single answer to any of this. Uh, the noble... Nobel Prize winning uh, economist Joseph Stiglitz said that he believes there's three ways to handle this. One is through government regulations and investment, you know, with solar powers on roof or making all cars electric by 2040, um, by, by funding uh, electric vehicle recharging stations, um, by supporting the emerging hydrogen industry, by supporting clusters, that kind of thing. Secondly, through innovation and improvement that business will do automatically. And thirdly, through a price on carbon and on board a tariff. So it's a whole bunch of, of different things. Um, it, it seems to me, Paul, that this is going to get more and more complicated as life goes on, but it also might get more simple <laughs> if we reduce our carbon. Oh, look, absolutely. And I think one of the, the things that often happens in, in innovation is that things start out very expensive, potentially not even technically possible, um, and you can often dismiss them and go, well, that's, you know, it's, it's a cost impost, it's a luxury, um, it's not something that's going to actually improve my business. And then you can often, things bubble away and things keep moving. You know, more research is done, more pilot projects, uh, new technology comes in, people come up with new non-R&D business models that actually change the, uh, the commerciality of it. Um, and then people can be surprised. Surprised. So a lot of things that are often seen as quite disruptive um, actually have just been bubbling away for a long time and maybe they've taken 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and I think that's another reason why you look to the future and you keep abreast of what's happening. Um, and you may look at something like the CBAM and say, look, it's really not affecting me, but, um, but you know, it will be expanded. Um, and the Europeans uh, have got quite a track record of setting... Um, uh, certifications and standards globally that others have uh, have taken up because uh, not necessarily do you want to actually have um, uh, different jurisdictions and different products that you're providing. It doesn't make much sense to do that. So you aim for the uh, uh, for the one that sets the highest standard. Um, and I think those sort of things will, will will happen quite a bit. But I think the you know the innovation side is always there. Um, I think because of the innovations that are happening now, a lot of these this makes commercial sense. Um, it's really, I think, less about what government's doing now uh, globally. It's actually more about what's being driven by major customers um, and by major investors. Um, and that's actually the thing that you really need to be watching. And things like the CBAM are, are effectively, you know, pressure coming on to governments to make sure that there is a level, level playing field. Uh, and then there isn't the, this dumping, I suspect, of, of carbon intensive products, um, which actually creates a uh, a disincentive for your, you know, for your leading companies to actually be innovating um, and looking at, at drastic reductions in carbon intensity. What do you think, Tennant? Do you think that's right? Uh, that 
industry will lead this as much as government will, uh, but we still need the government's things like CBAM to make sure it's fair. So there's absolutely no way to solve climate change without industry and governments and like civil society for that matter all playing uh, a part in it and you know we, we have there's probably no phrase more overused than there's no silver bullet but in fact what we see over and over again in climate policy discussions is people presenting one thing as the answer uh, and you know we need a lot of things working together but uh, there's no doubt that um, industry uh, that sees pathways for getting to net zero emissions themselves also see that there are some significant investments that they need to be able to make in entirely different production processes and there are cost premiums to uh, many of those processes. Now, they will generally improve over time, but in some cases, like with uh, hydrogen direct reduced iron to make steel, it looks like in the absence of a value placed uh, in the marketplace on carbon uh, that clean steel will always be more expensive to make than non-clean steel. So there needs to be something, whether it is uh, large consumer demand that is willing to pay a price premium or active uh, public policy that levels the playing field, there needs to be something or those investments won't be investable. Uh, there's huge interest from investors and from businesses in uh decarbonisation, but none of them have a licence to lose money. So the, the the solutions are needed. Now, CBAM is looking like uh, it may well be the way of the future, uh, but it, you know, we're going to learn a lot from watching how the Europeans go. The Americans uh, have a live proposal in front of them. Canada, uh, Japan, the United Kingdom, they're all studying options uh, and you know, we'll see how they go. Maybe Australia should be thinking about this too, but you can't do a CBAM without having something to adjust for. What were the recommendations in your report then? So there's there's a lot that we, we could be doing. Watching and learning is, is one of those, uh, but beyond that, as I was saying earlier, we do need to get in and... Uh, talk with Europe, talk with any others who are going down the same uh, pathway uh, to try to ensure that they live up to their commitments around uh, non-discrimination, WTO compatibility, fairness in how they implement these schemes and in particular negotiate with them to accept our data. Uh, that will really help us to put uh, our best foot forward. The other thing that we should be doing, though, is thinking about CBAM alongside other options for maintaining competitiveness as we develop our own plans to get to net zero emissions nationwide. Uh, there's a lot of, um, uh, of promise in the concept of, uh, of a CBAM, but you really need to think carefully about how you design it and uh, make it 
genuinely non-discriminatory and practical, uh, we should be doing some of that that thinking through pretty soon. Are we really going to be able to provide uh, Europe with a competitive product when we are thousands of miles away? So we already do have uh, some significant exports to Europe of goods. And uh, yeah, we're not going to be you know, the best place to, uh, to source everything. Uh, we're quite a long way away in terms of hydrogen shipping costs, for instance, although there is uh, partnership work uh, at uh, early stages between Germany and Australia around a future hydrogen market. Uh, but, you know, we're in there now. Shipping is uh, in a lot of turmoil at the moment, but shipping costs are, you know, they're not that big for many products. And so if we have a competitive advantage in clean energy and clean industry, there's every prospect that that advantage will be large enough to overcome the greater costs of shipping to uh, from Australia to Europe versus, say, the United States to Europe. So, uh, you know, we should get on and, and try and build that advantage and uh, see how much of the world opens up to us. Paul, any thoughts on that? I was going to say as well, I mean, in terms of, you know, exporting uh, to Europe um, and exporting around the world and, and, and knowing that a lot of AI group, a lot of MESCA members are in the sort of advanced manufacturing and services space, that um, that in, in those areas there is great opportunity for Australian exporters into Europe where, um, where companies over there are incentivised to be doing some really extraordinary things. Um, and Australia does have some great technology um, and some great capability that we can be exporting. And in some ways, that uh, there are a lot of companies and a lot of um, members of AI Group that can be uh, can be you know taking real advantage out of incentives in places like Europe, which has got about five hundred million, uh, you know, about twenty times the size of the Australian market in terms of population, um, to uh, to be to be putting in um, you know to be selling really quite premium products and services into those markets. Um, so I think, and, and I, I, you know, I don't know how true it is, but the other day by someone who should know actually said that we export more technology to Germany than Germany techno, uh, exports to Australia, which I find really quite surprising. surprising and I'd love to unpack that. Um, but, uh, but, but it's often, uh, we don't often talk so much about that. We talk about our large commodities and large uh, material exports, um, but we 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 uh, we often forget the uh, the advanced uh, nature of some of our trade flows out of Australia too, and the opportunities to expand those. Yeah, I think it's keep, it's worth keeping in mind just where we sit with Europe. Uh, I heard one uh, comment that when when asked who were the top ten countries that will be affected by CBAM. Uh, they mentioned countries like Russia, Turkey, Belarus, and a whole bunch of others, and Australia wasn't in there. So this is not designed as, you know, an attack on Australia or any country. It's supposed to be an equal playing field uh, across the board. It is not a, a tariff on Australia. It is a way of saying, let's just make sure it's fair for everyone, regardless of what your sovereign approach to carbon is. Is that right, Senator? Yeah, so the initial scope of the EU CBAM would affect about a quarter of 1% of Australia's goods exports to Europe. And in the um, 
the product categories we're talking about, we are a minnow in terms of uh, the, the share of uh, those exports that uh, that comes from Australia. Whereas uh, Russia and Turkey sell a heck of a lot of cement and steel and aluminium into Europe, and uh, America and China don't sell quite so much in those categories, especially after all of the, the trade wars and the anti-dumping duties of recent years. Uh, probably Europe feels a bit more comfortable experimenting uh, with CBAM in the sort of the uh, the safer confines of some product categories where it's not picking as direct a potential fight with the United States and China uh, first up. They want to demonstrate uh, their good faith and that this really is uh, WTO compatible and non-discriminatory. And, and they're doing that by experimenting largely on uh, Russia and Turkey. So I think that they are going to live up to their commitments. The, the, demand, the, the, the design uh, of their scheme uh, it really speaks to that commitment to, to making this work with the WTO. Uh, but we're gonna we're gonna wait and see uh, how it plays out over the next few years. It ha- hasn't been fully agreed yet. We've got probably one to two years more before that is fully through the EU Parliament and the Council of Ministers, and then we've got uh, three years of it being a reporting mechanism only before financial liabilities come in in twenty twenty six. So. Uh, a fair way down the road to go before we have a track record to judge it on. You only think of something. There's no uh, common taxation in Europe. It's individual countries that all feed into the Commission, the European Union Commission. Where does the money go? Who charges the... That's a very good question. So uh, the biggest political um, uh, agreement... Um, lying behind the CBAM so far is actually the big EU budget deal that uh, national leaders negotiated last year where they, uh, among other things, committed that there would be a CBAM as a new Europe-wide revenue source. So all of the revenue from the carbon border adjustment that isn't needed to cover the administration of it, which won't be very much, uh, is going to go into the EU budget. Uh, And of that, about a quarter of that revenue will go into uh, an EU-wide social assistance program to help households reduce their emissions, adopt cleaner technologies and and therefore reduce their exposure to carbon costs because those higher selling prices for goods that I mentioned, ultimately the cost of those falls on EU households. The other thing though that uh, CBAM allows Europe to do is uh, to reallocate all those carbon permits that are currently being handed out for free to steel makers and cement makers and so on in Europe. So they'll phase down that free allocation over 10 years and they'll put the value of those permits, they'll be auctioned, but the value of them will go into a fund for helping industry decarbonise, an innovation fund. And that... uh, from the, the CBAM units and, and many others, that's probably going to have a starting value of about 30 billion euro. 
that will grow over time. Uh, and that's probably going to do quite a lot of, uh, of heavy lifting to help uh, the uh, adoption of uh, carbon-free steelmaking, uh, carbon-free aluminium making and so on become investable alongside the, the price signal that the EU ETS provides and the level playing field that the CBAM provides. It's, it's also providing revenues that governments can do things with. It gets back to that uh, Stiglitz approach of the multifaceted answer, um, government investment and policy, uh, a price on carbon and innovation and, um, and improvements in carbon. Uh, Paul, with the fear of wandering into politics, it sounds like every government around the world, as they look at the sort of post-COVID <laughs> economic situation, they're going to say, hey, wow, there's money in carbon in taxation. Well, I think so. But I think they're also spending a lot of money. Um, and the EU is particularly spending a lot of money in um, in new energy infrastructure um, and incentives and in uh, an investment and the, and the same in in the US. Um, so as as governments look to spend uh, uh, to to grow their their economies uh, post pandemic, and we're certainly not in the post pandemic zone yet, but uh, certainly to, to to stimulate their economies, uh, a lot of investment is going into into carbon reduction. Um, investments in in whether it's electricity infrastructure or whether it's green hydrogen or whether it's uh, EVs or, or a whole range of different things. So, um, so I, and, and, and I guess, you know, where these things work best is where the money that's being raised is actually being, uh, being pumped back into incentives and, and infrastructure. And I suspect uh, uh, the, the amount of money that the, the EU will be looking to raise through the CBAM uh, will be dwarfed by the amount of money that they're actually investing um, in in carbon reduction initiatives. And also, logic says that over time, <clears throat> that revenue will reduce as the carbon emissions reduce. So it's it's uh, it's a shorter term kind of approach, I guess. It'll be a race between uh, the the shrinking of the number of units sold and the increase in the price of the units. So at some point, yeah, that revenue goes to zero or even negative because uh, there's uh, you know if if we're gonna get to uh, keep um, global temperatures within one and a half or even two degrees increase from pre-industrial levels. Uh, that, that means net negative emissions after net zero uh, and governments won't be making money from that. They'll be uh, either um, spending money or, or compelling purchase of, uh, of carbon drawdown and reduction. This is a fascinating conversation. Let's bring it to a close. Uh, how would you describe the, the report in, in an elevator pitch, Tenant? What should we take out of your labour of love? My beautiful baby. I think uh, the, the number one thing that people should take from it is that CBAMs are not a threat. They're not a great big stick waiting to whack us. They're an opportunity uh, both for us as an exporter, uh, if we can put our best foot forward, uh, keep improving our performance, we'll be fine, but also potentially as a tool for Australia to use. And we need to understand that tool a lot better than we do today. That's wonderful. Well said. Um, uh, and Paul, you've had experience in this. And will this report be put in the bottom drawer or 
will it be used somehow to some effect? Uh, and look, I'd like to congratulate Tenant and AI Group. It's a fantastic report. Um, it's really important to have this um, and to to do that. And and it will be used. Um, it will be used uh, possibly directly, but often in a way these get used. They get used in lots of different ways, indirectly and sometimes almost invisible ways as well. Um, they uh, they shift the thinking. Uh, they potentially um, uh, uh, make it a much more sober debate potentially as well. I mean, any of these kind of carbon border adjustment mechanisms or anything in the tariffs and kind of border protection kind of things can often be quite uh, quite volatile in the in the discussion. This is a very uh, sober assessment. Um, it actually shows that there's not a lot of um, uh, uh, impact for Australia in the short term, um, but it also sets out some, you know, pretty... Uh, pretty plain and simple ways of, of Australia engaging with it um, and also, um, you know, potentially benefiting from it and, and being part of that global push towards uh, uh, limiting uh, increases in, in temperature. So um, I, you know, I think it's great. It will be used. Um, um, I'm not expecting a lot of uh, businesses will read it from cover to cover, but um, I know that there will be some fact sheets and there will be some, some great write-ups of it. Um, and the recommendations and the executive summary are, are fantastic to read anyway. But um, really understanding where this is going and how you might be able to benefit from your business, um, I think, is the really key part of this. Um, so, yeah, uh, great discussion and well done. Yeah, nicely said. And congratulations, Tenor. That's a, that's a great piece of work. I um, I, I think it's, it's worth reading for that point, that point of... Um, Everyone, calm down. It's it's an opportunity here rather uh, than a big threat. Uh, and uh, and congratulations. I think it's I think it's wonderful that you've done such a thing. For everyone listening to uh, this podcast, if you've enjoyed it, why not head over to our LinkedIn page, Minerals Energy and Supply Chain Resilience, and uh, and drop a review. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, or do it under the normal processes of your podcast reviews. Uh, but that's all for now. We'll talk to you next time.